Great to be with you on this day. My name is Rob Sweet, and I'm one of the teaching pastors, and along with Lloyd, uh, you'll see us kind of uh, back and forth every week. We're walking through this book of Ecclesiastes. If you haven't already, open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 4. And by the way, let me say this, for those of you that are new, and I know the summertime you got people coming in and out, maybe moving to town and visiting, this is what we do here with our teaching, is we'll pick a book of the Bible and we'll teach through it, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. So we're on week seven of a journey through Ecclesiastes, which is a fascinating book. I mean, you have this man, and we believe it represents, if not actually, the voice of Solomon. We, it represents his wisdom. It may have been written down after his time by others that were reflecting on his wisdom in his life. And this was a man who had it all, and yet he's searching the outer boundaries of all that life has to offer. And he's saying, am I going to find fulfillment and satisfaction in wealth? Am I going to find fulfillment and satisfaction in pleasure? Am I going to find it in work? Am I going to find it in wisdom? Everywhere he goes, he keeps coming back to the same refrain. It's vanity. It's vapor. It's meaningless. There's nothing that lasts. There's nothing permanent. There's nothing of substance in life under the sun. And it's honestly been a fascinating philosophical journey uh, for me, hopefully for you as well, those of you who have been in the series with us. Last week, Lloyd summarized chapter 3. We broke that chapter down into two parts. And uh, Lloyd gave a terrific summary. And for those of you that weren't here, I wanted you to hear it. For those of you uh, that were here, you need to hear it again. And by the way, I'd encourage you to go l- listen to that message online. We always we podcast our messages, and they're also available on our website. You can either watch it or listen to it. Here's what Lloyd said to summarize chapter 3. Fear God, for every tick of the clock and every breath is under his sovereign control, even though for now there is an absence of justice and an abundance of oppression. That summary carries the tension of the book. It's like, fear God, for he's in control, even though for now there's an absence of justice and an abundance of oppression. That key phrase, even though for now, this would be a phrase we could put on a t-shirt as Christians. I mean, you really could. It's like God's in control, even though, even though it doesn't seem like it, even though it seems terrible at times, even though there's losses all around us and, and weariness all around us. And yet, right, the back half of that, for now, it will not always be this way. The hope of the follower of Jesus Christ is it's even though for now. Amen. Now, chapter four, where we're moving today, it's a little bit difficult to summarize with one key idea. I'm going to give it my best shot today. Um, part of the, the, the characteristic of wisdom literature, which Ecclesiastes would fall in that genre of wisdom literature, is it's not always building to one central thought, one central idea. I mean, you know, Paul's writing in his New Testament books and letters, you can kind of track his logic through. Solomon sometimes is like that, but in other times he's all over the place, you know. This is getting into a little bit of a proverbial wisdom chapter, but I think it can all be connected with a common theme, which is life together. So that's the title of this message this morning and the the theme that we're going to kind of group it around. Uh, In that context, let me say this, we live in a society and a culture where life together doesn't look like anything it did 100 years ago, 200 years ago. In fact, Robert Putnam, who's a Harvard sociologist, wrote a very well-known book at the turn of the millennia in 2000, and he was looking at cultural trends in America in the last 25 years of the 20th century. And he wrote a book called Bowling Alone. And that comes from this metaphor that he said, listen, people are actually bowling more now than they were 25 years ago, but they're not bowling in leagues anymore. 
Like there's this precipitous decline in bowling leagues over 25 years, even though people are still bowling. In fact, they're bowling more than they ever have, right? Bowling alone or, or you know, this, and he used that just as a metaphor. Listen to some of the other research he did. Attendance at club meetings, this, any kind of club that people are a part of, down 58% in the latter part of the 20th century. Family dinners declined 33%. Inviting friends to one's home decreased 45%. And he goes on and on and on and on. All these statistics that show we're experiencing an erosion of what he calls social capital. So what is social capital? It's the connections, the networks, the relationships among people. Like we've become more independent. We've become more isolated. Uh, We've essentially said, I'm not sure that community, apart from my own little world, apart maybe from my own little family, I'm not sure that community matters that much. Now think about where we've gone in the last 18 years since he published that study. I don't think it's gotten any better. I think we've probably become even more fractured, maybe more isolated, more in tune just to what we care about and the, the gathering people around us that think the same way rather than kind of, you know, broadening out our horizons. In fact, I think social media has been a part of that. And I'm not dogging social media, but I think it has a tendency to sort of make us think that community is sort of a virtual experience rather than an incarnational experience. And so these trends have continued. And so we get to Ecclesiastes 4, and what we're going to learn from Solomon and his wisdom in this passage this morning is you can live two different ways. You've got a choice. You can either live inward or you can live outward. Another way to think about it is you can either make life about yourself alone or you can make life about the community of people around you. Like you can either go bowling alone or you can join a bowling league and experience it from a team perspective. You can either, another way to to think about this, you can either live for me or live for we. And the one you choose will make all the difference. That's the big idea here in Ecclesiastes 4. So let's jump in. We've got 16 verses to cover. And I want to take some time at the end to get really practical in the application this morning. So we're going to have to press through some of these verses. And let's jump in. Verse 1. Then I looked again at all the acts of oppression which were being done under the sun. And behold, I saw the tears of the oppressed and that they had no one to comfort them. And on the side of their oppressors was power, but they had no one to comfort them. Now, oppression is a significant theme in the Bible. You, you hear it, Old Testament, New Testament, God's people are, are, are told two things. Don't oppress others, okay? That's kind of like a duh. You know, we're not supposed to oppress people, okay? Hopefully you already knew that. But the second one is you want to stand up for the oppressed. You want to take the side of the oppressed. That's a part of being the people of God. You see that in the Old Testament. You see that in the New Testament. Now, to understand that, you got to think about what oppression is biblically, all right? If you, if you trace it, the way the word is used, the way the concept is described in Scripture, you, you get this definition, and, and uh, this is by one commentator that I read this week. I thought it was a helpful way to say it. Oppression is seeking after profit without regard to the nature, needs, or rights of other people. So summarize it this way. It's putting yourself first in a way that pushes others down. It's not just putting yourself first. It's putting yourself first in a way that pushes others down. So it's climbing up the ladder and stepping on other people as you're climbing up the ladder. That's what oppression essentially is. And Solomon is looking around. He's saying, there's no balance. There's no justice. Power is on the side of the oppressors and there's no one to hold them in check and there's no one to comfort those who are on the short side of the stick. 
That's verse 1. Now he's going to draw a crazy depressive implication from that observation. All right, you ready for this? You know, here it is. So I congratulated the dead who are already dead more than the living who are still living. You know, it gets worse, verse 3. But better off than both of them is the one who's never existed, who has never seen the evil activity that is done under the sun. All right, so Lloyd had a doozy of a text on Mother's Day. I've got one on Father's Day. It's like, you know, here we are, women. You know, here we are, men. Mothers and fathers, it's better not to be alive. You know, is, is that the message that Solomon is going after? Well, in this context, it is. But let me explain what's happening, all right? And, and, and we're going to get to some hope later, deeper down in the passage. But think of it this way. Life under the sun, we've talked about Solomon's phrase, means life on a broken creation. Life in the fallenness. And what, one of the things we said in the very first week of this, of this series is you have to interpret Ecclesiastes through the lens of the fallen creation. I think Ecclesiastes is the clearest bell in all of the scripture to mourn the loss that a fallen creation is. It wakes us up to the darkness that is actually all around us if we pay attention. And Solomon is paying attention. He's saying there is a world out there where the ledger doesn't balance out. There's more evil than there is comfort. There's more bad than there is good. And let me just say this. We, we want to push back a little bit. Say, Don't be such a downer. Look around. There's beauty. You know, and, and honestly, we live in a very well-insulated area from a lot of the pain in the world. But every now and then, I'm, you know, scanning through the headlines on my phone, and you know how it is. You, you click on something that catches your eye, and, and every now and then, I'll read a story, and you probably do this too sometimes, that opens up your eyes and, you know, you read about something terrible happening to a child or you read about some parts of the world, some parts of our country where, where evil is on full display and it's not being checked the way that it should be in a, in a, a justice system that would be fair. I mean, it, it opens our eyes. And what Solomon is saying is don't always insulate yourself. You need to pay attention. There's a lot of oppression out there. And there are certain atrocities for me that if I let my mind think about them too long, I, I can't come out of that <coughs> nosedive. All right? If, if I just dwell on these things too long. And so what we do instead is, because we, we, we have to, is we, we turn away and, you know, go eat a burrito or, you know, or you go fly a kite or something like this. But, but life is hard, okay? Life under the sun does not balance out. And this is what Solomon is saying. Um, by the way, one thing that I've learned is true in this area, and I'm not dogging it. Like, you know, my, my family loves living in Middle Tennessee. It's fantastic. But, but here's what's true. There's still an awful lot of pain. It just tends to be masked, all right? So what's, uh, what's all around us for the most part, and I'm generalizing, which is always dangerous to do, is you got all these individuals, all these people, couples, families that are pursuing the good life in Middle Tennessee, you know, and, and man, we've got a good life in Middle Tennessee. We've got, we've got you know, affluence, not, not all, but, but many. We've got um, um, opportunity around here. We've got great coffee, okay? Can you just say we've got great coffee? You've <laughs> got entertainment. You've got music, the beauty of the hills. You've got the countryside, good schools, good parks. You know, it's this good life, and yet that, that good life is oftentimes masked inner relational pain that's all around us and not just all around us in us in us okay relational pain part of human existence we can't escape it 
Now, I want to go on to verse 4. He, he, again, news is going to get worse before it gets better, so let's keep going. I have seen that every labor and every skill which is done is the result of rivalry between a man and his neighbor. I'm going to pause right there in this verse, and then we'll finish the back half. So let's leave the verse on the screen. We'll, we'll come to the end in a second. At the heart of human activity, Solomon is saying, is a striving for, for a kind of a competitive achievement. All right, now it's easy at this point to say that is so true of other people. <laughs> that is so true of my boss. You know, that is so true of my neighbor. Not so fast. What's underneath rivalry? What's underneath competition? Comparison. Comparison. Okay, if there was no scoreboard, if there was no comparison, there'd be no game. Okay, we are all competitive comparing ourselves to others constantly. The way we look, our appearance, we're comparing ourselves to other people unconsciously oftentimes, constantly. How about our, our, our lifestyle? This is a hard place to live if you can't keep up with the Joneses. It just is. It just is. And a lot of our mindset says, man, I don't want to just keep up with the Joneses. I want the Joneses to keep up with me. You know, I want to have that good life. And, and this is sort of what's driving us uh, internally. Now, I see this in my girls all the time. You know, they're easy to pick on because they're like 7 and 10 and 13. And, you know, we, we were um, out recently visiting some, some uh, friends' houses. You know, they had a really nice house and just a, you know, great yard and playroom. And they had the newest video game and all this stuff. And just really, my daughters had a wonderful time, which I'm so grateful for that. Okay, that was a blessing to us as a family. And we got back and it was just sort of like, Dad, why don't we have a yard like that? I'm like, they loved our house until they went to this other place, right? It, it, constantly they're doing this. I mean, we, we got our oldest daughter a new bike and suddenly the, the little two don't like their bikes anymore. Okay, comparison kills joy. Like, is that not true? Comparison destroys contentment with what you have. And so we ride around, we walk around, we're constantly looking, you can't help it. We're constantly comparing, you can't help it. We're constantly, even subconsciously, keeping score and it's destroying our joy and contentment. I want to take this to another level. I came across a saying this week, any friend can share your sorrows and failures, but it takes a true friend to share your joys and successes. That's actually true. And then this other quotation uh, by a guy named David Gibson, who, who's written a helpful commentary on Ecclesiastes. Um, I, I hate to admit, I saw myself in this quote, and I think we all can. When we see a friend succeed and make things work, we smile and pat her on the back, but deep down we envy her because she's made us feel worse about ourselves. When a, when a friend falls flat on his face, our sinfulness is such that we can watch him mess up and even as we hug him, his failure makes us feel so much better about ourselves. Like, that's deep depravity in us, men and women. And a lot of it's at the subconscious level. Like think about that. Our friend succeeds and we're secretly jealous, that's the opposite of love. Our friend falls flat on his face, and you know, we comfort him, and secretly we're like, oh, thank goodness, man, I can feel better about myself now. That's the opposite of love. Okay, that, that's, that's hidden depravity deep in our own hearts, and I think there's seed of it in all of us. Now, let's finish the verse now. This, too, is vanity and striving after wind. 
So what Solomon is saying is there's nothing to gain from the comparison game, from the scoreboard checking. There's no point in all the effort to get ahead because you'll never be satisfied. There's always someone with more. There's always a guy that's more successful in his career that's got more than you do. There always is. Always. I don't care who you are. There's always a woman that's got a better picture of life, her family, her Instagram page, the, the, the perfect stuff you put on fe- uh, social media. There's always someone that's better. There's always someone that's more. It's vanity. It's striving after the wind. What a good reminder for us in this culture. Unmasking the good life. That's what Solomon is trying to do for us. It's a gift. Now, we get to verse 5 because there's an opposite extreme that he's going to talk about too. And I appreciate that about Solomon, right? He's going to talk about both extremes. So here's the other extreme, verse 5. The fool folds his hands and consumes his own flesh. Now, here's what he's talking about here. He's saying, on the one hand, when you're working too hard to get ahead of the Joneses, you know, and, and, and making your neighbor envy you, like, that's vanity. That's worthless. Don't spend your time there. But on the other hand, you can't just be lazy. Like, you can't just fold your hands because you won't have anything to eat. You won't have anything to consume except yourself. You know, and it creates this terrible word picture of this lazy person, you know, eating his own flesh. And obviously, hopefully that would never happen. But, but what we, we do when, when we're lazy and we just fold our hands is, is we destroy ourselves in other ways. Right? We, we incapacitate our, the image of God that God has put in us to be productive human beings, right? So laziness is not the answer. And I think the picture in, in light of what comes before it is someone that says, I give up, I can't keep up. You know, I can't be the guy on top. I can't be the, the, the woman that, that has everything that I, I want. And so, therefore, I'm just going to be passive and I'm going to fold my hands and say, well, you know, que sera, sera. Right, Solomon is saying there's danger there as well. Now, if these are two extremes, one being overly driven, one being overly lazy, verse 6 is going to give the answer. And he's going to give the answer in a proverb, okay? Which Solomon was great at proverbs. We know this. And here's an interesting one, verse 6. One hand full of rest is better than two fists full of labor and striving after wind. Okay, now let me unpack this so you can understand where he's going. He's saying your hands are not meant to be folded, verse 5, but they're also not meant to be grasping after things that don't have substance because all you end up with is air. So the answer is to take one hand and hold rest. And the implication is your second hand can then be productive and hold work. So it's a picture of balance. It's a, a two-handed approach, but not a two-handed grasping. One hand rest, one hand work. And I think the model here is our creator. I think this is what Solomon had in mind. He created, worked hard for six days, and he said, this is a Sabbath meant to be rested. I'm going to give you, human beings, the gift of rest, the gift of Sabbath, the gift of work, yes, He gave us that gift too. We've talked about that in the series, but you also have the gift of rest. And so I think the point of these two verses, five and six together, kind of these two really proverbs in a way, is to say work's a gift, rest is a gift, but you can only enjoy either if you can hold both. You got that? You can only enjoy either if you can hold both. Now, he's going to go on to give us a a colorful illustration, a, a mini parable that's going to keep rolling on this theme. Okay, look at this in 7 and 8. 
Then I looked again at vanity under the sun. There was a certain man without a dependent, having neither a son nor brother, yet there was no end to all his labor. Indeed, his eyes were not satisfied with riches, and he never asked, And for whom am I laboring and depriving myself of pleasure? This too is vanity, and it is a grievous task. Okay, what Solomon paints here is a picture of the lonely workaholic. And it makes me wonder, is there any other kind of workaholic? Okay, now again, your temptation here is to say, I know a guy like that. I know a woman like that. I want you to see some of this in your own heart. Like for all of us that are driven, this is something we need to pay attention to. The tragedy here in this parable is not that the wealth and success failed to satisfy the man, although that's true. The real tragedy is he had no one to share it with, right? So that phrase, without a dependent, if you dig down, you know, like double click on that phrase, you know, in the Hebrew, what you find is it means he had no one, no one close to him, no wife, no close relative, no son or daughter, no grandchild, no, no one, no close friend even. So here's the lesson of the parable. You know, it's a little bit exaggerated, but we need to even see ourselves in this. Here's the lesson of the parable. Without meaningful community, there's no value in accumulation and accomplishment. Without meaningful community, no value in accumulation and accomplishment. It begs the question of whether success is actually success if it's about me rather than we. That's the question this parable begs. And by the way, there is a wonderful application for all of us in this little question embedded at the end of the parable. And for some of you today, if this is the only thing you get out of this message, it's a worthwhile 40 minutes, all right? Look at, look at the question in the parable. For whom am I laboring? What a good question. That, that's worth the price of admission right there, okay? For whom am I laboring? Right there straight from the text. Now, don't answer too quickly because all of us that are driven and, and, and tend to you know, spend long hours, right? And I'm right in that boat. All of us tend to say, it's for my family, Right? It's for the people I care about. It's for my wife and it's for my kids. You know, I, I want them to have nice things. You know, I, I want them to have, some of you, more than what I had. You know, whatever your story is, et cetera, et cetera. And, and I just want to say, pause for a minute. How much do they need? Uh, I was talking to a couple people on our staff recently and, and we, we, we agreed on this. In some sense, this is an incredible place to raise a family. This area. And in another sense, it's a terrible place to raise a family. Like what kind of, of unconscious lessons are our kids and teenagers learning in this insulated, wonderful, pursuing the good life kind of area, right? This is why I love the fact that our FSM is sending so many kids to a different part of the world on a short-term on short-term mission trips. This year, that's a part of what we do. We value it. Families, I want to encourage you to jump in on those opportunities for family trips that come up now again. We've got to disciple our kids in something other than the good life culture. And, and I want to ask those of us that are driven, who is it actually for? Like, is it really for them? Is it really for them? The sad commentary for many of us is the very thing that allows you to be successful 
your drive, your aspiration, your ambition, that very thing is the thing that's eroding your relationships. Now, there's a balance. That's what I like about Solomon. You can't just fold your hands and eat your own flesh. But hold in one hand rest, which includes investment in others and being present in others' lives. And hold another hand labor. All right, great wisdom right here from Ecclesiastes. Okay, now we get into the part that Will read, verses 9 to 12, which are some of the best-known verses in Ecclesiastes. And by the way, some of the best-known verses in the whole Bible when it comes to human community and relationship. Let me read it again. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. For if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion. But woe to the one who falls when there is not another to lift him up. Furthermore, if two lie down together, they keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? And if one can overpower him who is alone, two can resist him. A cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. All right, this is most often heard at weddings. All right, probably most of you, if you've heard this read, you've heard it read at a wedding. And it, it, it's not completely out of context at a wedding. I mean, you know, it can apply to marriage, but it's not written for marriage. It can be applied to it, but it's not written for marriage. It's much broader than in fact. In fact, what Solomon is doing here is he's using the metaphor of a journey. Okay, and that's not immediately apparent. So let me explain why I think he's using the journey of, uh, the, the metaphor of a journey. Road trips back then were extremely dangerous, all right? So uh, if you were going to go anywhere that was more than a day's walk, you were taking your life in your hands, literally, literally, okay? The roads weren't great. The terrain was terrible. You had exposure to the elements. I mean, the desert climate that Solomon was in, really hot during the day, really cold at night. You've got wild animals that could attack you if you're unguarded. You've got thieves, you know, other you know, bad guys that could come up. You know, you see that in the, 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 the story of the Good Samaritan that Jesus talks about was that exact same scenario. There's all kinds of things that could eat you and kill you if you're on the road. So you would never go alone. You would never go alone. You would take a companion. Better yet, you'd take a couple of companions or a, a traveling group together. Because when you fall down due to the rocky terrain, someone can help you back up if you're injured. You might huddle together at night because of the bitter cold that could actually take your life if you didn't have human community around you. You could defend one another in case of an attack. In fact, the bad guys wouldn't even attack you if you were with three or four other people. You see, Solomon has this in mind when he's talking about human community. And he's essentially saying the journey of life is a lot like that. So think about the incredibly harsh picture of the journey that Solomon has created up to this point in Ecclesiastes. He's saying, life under the sun is full of oppression. It's full of adversity. It's full of you know, mystery. It's meaningless. Life under the sun is hard. It's difficult to the degree that it might be better to have never existed. But since you are existing, since you're walking on the journey of life, don't go alone. Don't go alone. In fact... I think what he's getting after here is what we would call 
the common grace of human relationship. What is a common grace? A, a common grace is a theological term, and it just means gifts of God that everybody can enjoy, whether they're a believer, an unbeliever, whether they're trying to walk with God, or whether they're trying to run from God. Think about food. You know how God has made us to be able to taste food, and it tastes so good. Think about sunshine. Think about oceans and the beauty. Think about all the things in your life that you, know, you can enjoy and others can enjoy. These are common graces is what theologians call them. Now, I want you to think back to the creation for just a minute. God created Adam in a perfect environment with no sin, good work to do, insulation in the garden from, from anything out there that might you know, be uh, um, against him. And yet, he tells Adam, in the, the middle of that perfect environment, Genesis 2.18, it is not good for the man to be alone. And if I were Adam, I might have said, what are you talking about, God? I'm not alone. I'm with you. We walk in the cool of the day. We have a perfect relationship. Right? There's no sin to block that intimacy with God. And yet God is saying, Adam, I have created you not to be alone. But I'm with you, God. Well, I'm not alone. Adam, listen to what I'm saying. It is not good for you to be alone. And so he creates another human being. Now, the message here, and I want to speak specifically to you single people out there, and we've got a number. The message is not, it's better to be married. That's not the message. In fact, Paul says something very different in the New Testament. He goes, actually, if you can go without being married, there's benefit to that. There's some goodness in that. The message of Genesis chapter 2 says it's not good for a human being to be alone. You need to be with another human being. You need to be with other human beings. And so that's the cultural mandate. God says, Adam and Eve, you're the first. I want you to spread out all over the world as a community, as a people that glorifies me in unity together. You see, this is the common grace of human community. Now, we're going to come back to that because this is, this is the heart of our application this morning. And I want to hopefully save some time. How does the time go by so fast? This is silly. I've got to get through these last uh, three or four verses because I, I don't want you to say that I didn't cover the whole passage. But honestly, these last three or four verses are kind of weird. All right? They're confusing. Okay? But uh, scholars have no idea what they really mean. Okay? But, but I'm going to give you the best uh, thing that, that I think is what's going on here. All right. Then we'll come back to the other application. Verse 13. A poor yet wise lad is better than an old and foolish king who no longer knows how to receive instruction. For he has come out of prison to become king, even though he was born poor in his kingdom. I have seen all the living under the sun throng to the side of the second lad who replaces him. There's no end to all the people, to all who, are with, who were before them, and even the ones who will come later will not be happy with him, for this too is vanity and striving after wind. Um, the reason it's confusing is when you look at the Hebrew, scholars can't figure out, like, who's he talking about? Are there two lads and one old king or one old king and one lad? And, you know, besides just the word lad is kind of weird. You can just say that. But, but anyway, here's what I think is going on in this passage. Solomon is saying, look, even rising to the top of society and ruling over society as the guy at the top is not where fulfillment is. 
Like there's, there's fulfillment in being together, but be careful, those of you that are at the very top. In fact, uh, Derek Kidner describes the powerful person this way. He has reached the pinnacle of human glory only to be stranded there. And I think that's a lot of our experience. Now, that doesn't mean to not aspire. You know, you should aspire to leadership. There's other places in Scripture that talk about that. And if you're at the top in your company or your organization, whatever it is, lead well, but do it with others and don't think you're going to find your meaning and your value in life in your kingdom. All right, that's, I think, what Solomon is going after. Now, let's go backward because I'm running out of time rapidly and, and I've got to give you some practical application Here's what we're going to do. I'm going to give you one strain of application that's for you individually, personally to reflect on, and then one that's for us at Fellowship Bible Church corporately. Let's start with the first. Um, let's look back at verses 9 to 12. I'm going to guide you through an exercise using these four verses that's going to be very tangible, very practical. And so you will need for this exercise either something to write on with or, or your phone if you've got that where you can take notes on that. I know some of you like cynics out there like I'm not lifting a finger so I know where this is going, you know, okay. Like I get that. But we want you to engage in the worship service, not just be a consumer of a worship service. So, so please, I, I, I think this is going to help you. Honestly, I do. But it's your choice to engage this or not. I'm going to ask you four questions straight out of Ecclesiastes 4, 9 to 12. One question per verse. One question for verse 9, one question for verse 10, etc. Um, and I want you to answer these questions with a name. A name of an individual in your sphere of influence or someone you know, you know, someone that's close to you. You can only use a name one time. You can't put the same name for more than one question, okay? And I'll even say this. If you don't have a name that fits the question, Leave it blank. And you'll see where this is going in a minute. Okay, this is about to make a lot more sense. Verse nine, two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. Here's the, the first question for you to answer with a name. Who do you work well with? Who do you work well with? And I, I'm not talking about who do you get along well at work, okay? I mean like who helps you? Who, who can be a partner for you in some sense that makes you better at what you do? That that pushes you or challenges you, encourages you in your productivity, in your labor? Do you have someone alongside you in your work that you work well with? Who helps you be more productive? Who do you work well with? That's the first question. I know some of you need to hear all of them before you can kind of answer them, but, but just roll with this for a minute. Verse 10, for if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion, but woe to the one who falls when there is not another to lift him up. Here's the second question, who picks you up? when you are down? Who picks you up when you're down? Um, this could be someone that encourages you. Who's an encourager for you in your life? Uh, I, I like to take it even a little bit deeper. When you fall flat on your face, when you do something, man, you had a conversation last night with somebody and you just, you insulted them or you blew something up with your husband or with your wife or you, you fell to some temptation. When you fall, is there somebody you can call and say, would you help me get back up? That's the second question. Right, these questions are, are getting hard, right? These, these are really hard for me, if, if I'm frank. Verse 11, furthermore, if two lie down together, they keep warm, but how can one be warm alone? Now, let me interpret this for our single brothers out there that are like, man, I got a good verse now for my next date, okay? <laughs> 
don't go there, all right? That's evil. Don't go there. Let, let me explain what this is. Um, in that context, if you did not have warmth at night, particularly in the winter months, you weren't going to wake up the next morning, okay? Winter was a real thing. Darkness was a scary thing. So here's the third question. Who stays close in adversity or grief? In other words, when the dark night of your soul comes, who are you going to call? Who's close to you? When, when cancer comes, when you lose the child, when the breakup happens, who's that person that's going to be there in adversity and grief? When there's no light anywhere around you, when you can't see where you're going, and when you're shivering in the cold, who is there? Who stays close in adversity or grief? And one more. Verse 12, if one can overpower him who is alone, two can resist him. A cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. Who will fight with you? Who will fight with you? When you are in the middle of some kind of fight, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of temptation. I'm thinking of some struggle. Uh, you are engaging against something. And there, there's a, a sense in you of who can you call around that's going to say, I've got your back. I am with you in this. Who's going to go to battle for you? Now, some of you, like me, had a really hard time coming up with four different names. Maybe you got one. Maybe you got two. All right, And you want to say, well, hold on, Rob, that's not fair. I've got one person that can do all four of those things for me. I'm saying you need more than one. All right, you need a constellation of close relationships in your life if you're going to make it through this life. You, you do. You need it. All right. So some of you had trouble with that. Um, some of you, maybe it was easy. Here's what I want you to do with those names, whether you had one or two or three or four, is I want you this week to do something tangibly to strengthen or deepen that relationship with that person. Do, do something this week to solidify it or deepen that relationship. Maybe reconnect with an old friend that, that was a part of your life that you've lost touch with because you need them to be one of your four. All right? How about this idea? Name the significance of that relationship to you. Call them up. And say, listen, our pastor had us do this exercise and it got to this question of who lifts you up when you fall down. And, and you're the guy, you know, or, or you're the lady that I wrote down. And let me tell you how much that means to me. And, and I don't even know if you knew that that was important, but, but it is. And, and I need you and I want to thank you for that. You see how naming the significance solidifies the relationship? I'm seriously challenging all of us this week to reach out to those four or three or two people that you wrote down. Now, if you had trouble coming up with the names like I did, then here's what I want to say. We need to put intentional focus on developing relationships. We need to put intentional focus on developing relationships. We, we've got to do a better job of holding labor in one hand and, and rest in another, you know, pursuing other relationships and, and another. Um, the culture stacked against you. This is a bowling alone place, all right? Your schedule is stacked against you. You don't have any more margin for this, but you must do it. You must do it. This is what scripture would call you to. There's one other thing stacked against you, by the way, your own heart. Rivalry, comparison. You know, that, that quote about how hugging a friend when they're successful and, and really you're jealous, that's real. How are you going to overcome that? Because you have to overcome that in order to move toward people in true friendship and love. 
How are you going to overcome that? Only through the gospel. Only through Christ. Listen, every time you come across a problem that's in your own heart, there is only one answer. There's only one person that can help you with that problem. So how does that happen? Well, Jesus' work in redemption was not just about individuals getting saved. It was about a community of people that he is bringing to faith in him so that they will live together in community on the new heavens and the new earth, right? It's a we salvation, not a me only salvation. And the metaphor in the New Testament of the church is a body united. So I think what's happening is in the church era, post the death and resurrection of Jesus, God is saying, remember that common grace I gave you of human relationship? I'm going to give followers of Jesus a deeper experience in that that's going to point other people to me. And so it is the church that should be the city on a hill because of the way that we are loving each other. It is the church that should be meeting each other's needs. It is the church that should be loving each other well. And to the degree that that sounds outside of your own experience is the degree in which we have failed. And I mean that literally and seriously. And I don't mean that just at fellowship. Certainly it goes far beyond these walls, but I do mean that at fellowship. And I'm not knocking our church. This is a fantastic place. But I don't believe, and as we've talked with our elders and our leadership team and all of those around us that are, that are right now praying about what God's vision is for us in the next five years, 10 years, 15 years, one of the things we've gotten a deep spirit-led conviction is we've got to encourage and admonish and help our people connect, live life together, deep relationships. We want some of your four to be people in this body. They don't all have to be, but this is the church. This is the body of Christ. We have the spirit in common. So what you see in the New Testament, we looked at this at Acts, is people transcending their competitiveness, transcending their rivalries, transcending their me-selfishness to open their hands to other people. Is that not the picture of the church in Acts? Now, in a true theological sense, the church, and I don't mean just the local expression at fellowship, but I mean the church universal, is meant to be our closest relational connection. And I know that's not most of our experience, but it's meant to be that way. It's meant to be above cultural and race affiliation. It is. It's meant to be above political affiliation. It's meant to be above civic affiliation. It's even meant to be above family affiliation. Doesn't mean none of those things are unimportant. It just means that the body of Christ is first in our community experience. There's no question in Scripture. That's just, that's just there. Now, what are we going to do about it? Okay, What are we going to do about it literally at Fellowship Bible Church um, one of the features that we're talking about is we're going to reemphasize this walking in together value. And if you think about our name, each three words of our name are important. We're a Bible church, and that has significant implications for our current, our past, and our future. We're a church, and we're fellowship Bible church. You follow that? Fellowship. 
So this church was started with a big emphasis on groups and connection and doing life together in homes, et cetera. We kind of have sort of lost track of the ball on that for a season of time, and we, we've started putting that back on our radar. And this fall, we're just going to invite as many of you as can or as many of you want to be a part of a fellowship group. Not the only way to connect around here, but, but if you will make time in your margin for this, you will be surprised how this church experience all of a sudden feels different from you. You will shift from a consumer of religious goods and services to someone who's a part of a community on a mission. And that's our vision for us. And Lloyd and I are going to unpack, we're going to do a whole series in the fall on our vision. And this community element is just going to be one part of it. But I can't wait for us to get there. But, you know, we've got, we're going to finish Ecclesiastes first. Now, in the fall, we hope to launch 40 new fellowship groups. That will accommodate about 500 of you that aren't currently in a group. And again, you know, we're not going to say you have to be in a group or leave the church. Like, we're not going there. But we're going to challenge you and encourage. We're just going to just, just open our hands and say, is, is there a way that you can make this a part of your experience at Fellowship Bible Church? Because you're missing out if something like this is not a part of your experience. Um, we're we're going to make sure we've got groups for, for singles. We've got groups for couples and families. We're going to give you options. We want you to engage in it. 500 people that are right now not in community will have that opportunity in the fall. In order to get there, we need some leaders. So I am unashamedly just putting in a plug, put an email address on the screen. If you're willing to lead, you don't have to be a Bible teacher per se. You just have to be someone that's willing to help create a group. You don't even have to open your own home. That can be shared around the group. But if you're someone that say, yeah, I could step in and help facilitate a group. I'm willing to see what that looks like. Would you just email this email address you know, we've got to have a lot of leaders if we're going to launch 40 new groups. And I want to pray to that end. Here's how our community is going to experience God's word. Only if we live it out. We cannot live out God's word without taking community seriously. Can't do it. So we're going to invite you in. And I want you to be praying about that even this summer. And so let me pray for us now, all of us, in our individual application, in our corporate application, and then we'll sing a final song and, uh, and be out of here. Father, we do thank you for giving us the common grace of human relationship and then giving us the church, which allows us to have even a deeper experience of it. And we confess we have not lived that out the way that you would call us to. Would you help us? And we're counting on your spirit to guide and lead. I pray for the people in, in the room right now. Some of, them, some of them had an aha moment this morning when they realized I don't even have four close, trusted people. Um, some realized I've got some wonderful friends that I've taken for granted. Some realized I think I'm being too selfish and, and, and I need to open my hands a little bit. Some realized I've been pushing too hard in my work and, and maybe it's really all about me at the end of the day and not about we God, I pray for every single person in this room that you would apply your word to their lives according to how your spirit would lead. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.